This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Hello and welcome. Uh, I'm Wynne Burkle, Director of the Rand Corporation's Office of Congressional Relations here in D.C. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to this Rand briefing on Transportation 2030, uh, about two different plausible scenarios for the future, future of transportation and mobility in America. I'd like to introduce our presenter today, uh, Johannes Mudd, uh, who's the primary author of the report, The Future of Mobility, which I think you all have in your hands, uh, which was sponsored by the Institute for Mobility Research, or uh, IFMO, which you'll hear about uh, for, in a moment uh, during our presentation. You'll hear from Peter as well. Um, uh, Johanna is a senior policy researcher and is the director of the RAND Transportation, Space, and Technology Program. She has 25 years of experience in improving and providing data, information, and analysis for policy and planning decision-making for both passenger and freight sectors. Uh, primary areas of expertise for her include uh, analysis of urban and long-distance travel behavior, applying behavioral insights to mobility-related policy issues, intersection of transportation and information and communication technologies, or ICT. Um, currently, she's leading work on the impact of socio-demographics on travel demand in the U.S., future automobility in the BRIC countries, and scenarios of mobility in China for 2030 as well. Uh, I'll just note she chairs a special task force on data for decisions and performance measures for uh, the TRB Transportation Research Board of the National Academy of Sciences. She also serves as a member of the National Research Council Committee on Long-Term Stewardship of Safety Data from the Second Strategic Highway Research Program. That was a mouthful. Um, uh, before we go on, uh, how many folks in the room have heard of or know about scenario planning? Some do, some don't. All right, let me give you the brief overview since I worked on the Hill. This will take about 30 seconds. Um, when I worked on Capitol Hill, we didn't have the opportunity to do much long-term planning or thinking. That was the brush fire tyranny of the inbox day, everything coming at you. So the ability to think long-term for me on the Hill was a three or four-year period. But what we do here in Congress uh, affects 10, as we all know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years out. But we rarely get to think about what might happen in 10, 20, 30 years, or in this case, 17 years from today. Um, so what we, th we thought to bring this to the Hill, the advantage of some uh, experts who had done scenario planning. Scenario planning is long-term planning where there is great uncertainty, which with long-term planning there almost always is. There's so many variables um, at the far end. It's like a hurricane on day se seven days away. The track is very wide. So scenario planning involves saying these are not predictions. These are not forecasts. These are two plausible scenarios you're going to hear about today, about how things might turn out, and your ability to think about these factors and the factors that will influence whether it goes one way or the other way or somewhere in the middle will help you get a greater understanding of the long-term outcomes of what we do today and other inputs cause uh, in uh, 17 years. So I'll give you one last uh, little blurb before I turn it over to Johanna. Uh, Royal Dutch Shell uses uh, long-term planning and has since the late 60s, and they, uh, there's an article in Harvard Business Review from earlier this year where they said, well, you know, we started in the sort of mid to late 60s and we gave a number of predictions to our managing directors. They were, weren't predictions, they were scenarios. One of them was about an oil shock that might occur within the next few years. It was one of six scenarios. 
When the oil shock happened in 1973, uh, the managing directors turned to the scenario people and said, ah, we now realize the value of this. You predicted it accurately. They said, no, it was one of six. It's not a prediction. We don't do forecasts. We're not forecasters. We are your personal trainers. We get you ready for all the things that might be allow you to think about them. So when one of them does happen, you've thought about the factors. And so that's what you're largely going to hear about today with two visions uh, of transportation and mobility in 2030. And with that, let me turn it over to Johanna. So um, good morning, and thank you for joining us today. Um, so our research was developed to inform the question, what might we expect for the future of mobility in the United States in 2030? This is an important question. Uh, for without knowing uh, how and how much Americans might travel in the future, policymakers and other decision makers uh, might not be able to, to realize um, how much infrastructure is needed uh, to uh, take care of demand, how much um, funding is needed to develop uh, the infrastructure that is needed, and also how uh, different rail or train infrastructure might be needed in the future. So what might we expect in the future? This. For example, did you hear about the state that threatened to close a major bridge over the Mississippi River for safety reasons? This prompted the federal government to have to come in and assume responsibility for building its replacement. If you haven't heard of that story, it's because it hasn't happened yet, but it could. As a nation, we are still debating how to fund our transportation infrastructure. And kicking that can down the road has and will continue to impact the state of repair of our transportation infrastructure. In the midst of this debate, knowing that it's plausible that major transportation assets may deteriorate to the point of closure changes our understanding, should change your understanding of the future. This is how scenarios can help decision making, much like Wynne just talked about, uh, sort of uh, help you do your, uh, as part of your personal training. Ideas are like pixels. With only a few, they are random dots on a canvas. But through the right lens, and scenarios become a lens, they can form recognizable patterns, turning random dots into alternative visions of what's coming next. And that's what policymakers do, try and anticipate what's coming next, so that today's decisions can help shape the future. So to have you, uh, give you a better understanding of what's coming next, I'm going to turn to our research part partner, Peter Fletz from the Institute for Mobility Research, and he's going to brief you on our methodology. Thank you. Thank you, Johanna, and good morning. I'm very happy to be here today. Um, before I give you um, a quick overview on how we actually um, develop these scenarios, I just want to say some quick words in our institute. The Institute for Mobility Research is a research facility of BMW Group. We are located uh, in, at uh, BMW headquarters in Munich, but we are an independent research institute, so we can act independent from daily politics. 
and we also have a, um, a board that supervises us. In this board we have members from uh, Deutsche Bahn, which is German Railway, uh, from Siemens, um, from MAN, which is a truck manufacturer, um, and uh, also some uh, from the World Bank, Andreas Kopp, who is working here in Washington. And uh, the Institute is especially known for a series of reports that we call the future of mobility. So these are big scenario studies um, for um, the future of mobility in Germany. And we have um, um, published three of those over the last 10 years. So we uh, update those on a regular five-year basis. And as Wynne said, with those scenarios, we don't want to predict the future. Um, we don't know how the future will be, but with the scenarios you can get a feeling on how the future might look um, in case there are changes in those five environment areas. So uh, in the demographic area, in the econ economic area, in energy related um, area, in, in politics, so everything um, that comes with funding and regulation and also in the technological area. Um, the, the basic approach when we develop scenarios is that, for, that we define um, factors, or we also call them descriptors for those five environment areas. So for example, for demography, we have total population. For economy, we used um, average GDP growth uh, per year over the next 20 years. For energy, we talked about oil prices or um, how uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction policies might um, develop in the future. Um, funding and regulation, we talked about the cost, the average cost to drive per mile in the future, or the quality and quantity of public transit. And in the technology area, we had factors like um, telecommuting uh, or the share of fully autonomous vehicles in the future. So for all these factors, um, in, in our approach, we need to define future projections, and those projections should be, uh, if possible, should be, um, uh, uh, we defined alternative projections. So if there is large uncertainty, we defined two or even three projections. If um, there wasn't so much uncertainty, we only came up with one projection. And we didn't do that on our own, only in our core team, but in scenario analysis, you try to get insight from external people. So we invited around 50 external people from, um, who have expertise in those five environment areas I've talked before. Um, those people came from the academic sector, um, from nonprofit organizations, from the government sector, and also from private uh, organizations. We had five workshops together with them, so for each environment area, one workshop, and we discussed plausible uh, future projections for all those factors. So that was kind of the basement for the overall um, scenario development approach. Because after we have selected those projections uh, in the five influencing areas, we made some analysis. So for example, um, we looked how those factors impact each other in the future. Uh, and then um, we, we took those analyses and then, let me say like this, we, we put it into a computer support tool that helped us to um, uh, finally end up with two plausible and internally consistent scenarios. And those scenarios uh, were finally um, written down in stories, so we produced um, scenario narratives um, where we explained uh, not only how this scenario turns out to be in the year 2030, but we also explained how we came up to the year 2030. Um, after we've done this, we also made um, estimates on how passenger miles traveled might develop in those two scenarios um, until the year 2030 for different modes of transport. 
Well, the overall aim of scenario, um, scenario analysis is to come up with two very different views of the future. But um, we also came up with some factors, with some common factors that were the same in, this, in the two scenarios. So for example, our de demographic expert said that US population growth will most likely um, develop uh, with 0.8% um, each year until the year 2030. Our economic expert said that the range, the, the plausible range of GDP growth until the year 2030 is somewhere in between 2.0 and 2.5%. Um, the energy experts said that US oil production will most likely double to 50 million uh, barrels per day. So we have that protection also in, in both scenarios. Um, your government has agreed on new CAFE standards for the year 2025, I think last year. So we've also uh, integrated those new CAFE standards of 54.5 uh, million uh, miles per gallon um, uh, fuel efficiency standards in both scenarios. And also uh, a common factor for both scenarios is that we don't see a large share of fully autonomous vehicles um, until the year 2030. So in, um in cars is increasing, but um, we don't expect that really a large share of fully autonomous vehicles um, will drive around in the year 2030. So those are some common factors, but um, we also, of course, had some factors that are very, very different. And, and I want to highlight those three, and Johanna will come back to those three factors in the end of the presentation again. So for example, we, had, we have two scenarios with very different oil prices. Um, by the way, all the prices we're talking um, about today in the presentation are 2012 prices, so not inflation adjusted for the year 2030, but um, 2012 prices. So we have one scenario um, with $190 per barrel and one scenario with only $90 per barrel. Um, the level of environmental regulation is very different in the two scenarios, as you will see. And also the amount of highway revenues and expenditures <coughs> is very different in the scenarios. So that was all from my side. Johanna will now um, go into detail uh, for the scenarios. Uh, thank you, Peter. So our research resulted in two opposing scenarios. The first is no free lunch. Under this scenario, by 2030, oil prices have soared to $190 per barrel based on Chinese and Indian demand, among other factors. But perhaps more importantly, the destructive effects of climate change have become increasingly clear to the average American. Floods and droughts have led to so skyrocketing food prices and insurance losses, and the general public and businesses have pressured elected officials to take action. As a result, the U.S. has introduced a cap-and-trade program, supported investments in alternative fuels and vehicles, and developed widespread road pricing programs. That's the first scenario, no free lunch. Contrasting this future is the second scenario, titled Fueled and Free Whaling. Under this scenario, in 2030, the US is similar in a lot of ways to the free whaling 1980s and 1990s. Lower than anticipated oil prices and inexpensive fuel have made driving relatively painless. The economy is booming and harms from climate change have not unduly affected the U.S. On the other hand, 
congestion is increasing, and we don't have a consistent solution to funding infrastructure improvements. Which of these two views might come closest to the truth? It's really hard to say. And we don't present a good scenario and a bad scenario. We tried to be as objective as possible. The methodology that Peter just described to you really came from um, our objective interpretation of expert opinion. And our report presents factors and paths that lead to one scenario versus another future scenario. So you can actually follow our scenarios and see how we get to these two opposing views. Our point is that decisions that policymakers make now, are making today, shape those paths and the future that results. So to make the distinction in these scenarios a little clearer, we want to give a, go into a little closer look at each scenario. Under the no free lunch scenario, we live in a world where, in 2030, a national carbon tax has been implemented. This leg legislation has spurred innovation in the energy domain and the uptake of renew renewable and alternative fuels. But the clean technologies have made it more expensive to purchase a vehicle. Under no free lunch scenario in 2030, oil prices have been an all-time high and the cost of driving has increased significantly, so people drive less. But there is greater car sharing and increased public transit use. In 2030, under no free lunch, the cost of driving also increases due to the mainstreaming of road pricing. But the new revenues are used in part to fund infrastructure transportation improvements. So uh, picture this new world in which the meaning of car culture shifts. If you buy a car, the chances that it's a hybrid or an electric vehicle are much higher than today. The car, as I mentioned, will also be more expensive. If you have a car, you're driving less. But you might not even own a car. And, and why? Well, the cost to drive is doubled. In 2030, gas prices are $8 to $10 per gallon, and that's changed both the kind of cars Americans want to drive and how much they drive them. Electric vehicles are the most popular cars to drive, and most charging is done at home. A battery charging station is standard in most new homes in 2030, under no free lunch scenario. And retrofitting older homes has, has jump-started uh, hundreds of new small businesses. While fuel may be cheaper for these vehicles, Americans are still having to pay road user fees, which are now mainstreamed. So many people are opting not to have cars at all. And a myriad of different types of car sharing services and the apps that support them provide vehicle-less households with mobility options. Another view of this no free lunch scenario, the world that you might be living in, is that urbanized suburbs are the future. Population density has increased in both urban and suburban neighborhoods. Suburbs around the country look a lot like Arlington, Virginia. New homes are smaller and closer together, and more row houses and apartments are being built. Why? A new carbon tax has made both driving and housing more expensive. Developable land is scarce, 
and land prices per square foot have increased significantly. And the high cost to drive has discouraged driving alone and increased demand for public transit. But transit only works for certain trips, we know that. So people, when they can, are using technology to substitute for travel. In 2030, under the no free lunch scenario, about 40% of workers telecommute in some form. Now we're going to leave the no free lunch world if you like it and you're comfortable there. We're gonna go into a different world and look at life under fueled and freewheeling. This world is very different. In this world, in 2030, it's cheap to drive. People are making more trips, but we see significant increases in congestion. Now that it costs less to drive, people are living farther away from home where they can buy bigger houses with larger lots. We see high per capita vehicle miles traveled and the suburbs are booming. Under fueled and freewheeling in 2030, there are no new taxes and, gov and less government regulation overall. A lot of people like that, but there are geographic winners and losers. Around the country, depending on whether states and localities have stepped up to fill the funding and policy gaps. So, if you're living the life of fueled and freewheeling, you're on the road with lots of other people and lots of other cars. Congestion has increased significantly, but people are less concerned. Why? Technologies have made it easier to be more productive while stuck in traffic. Smartphone capabilities have evolved and now communicate almost seamlessly with any post-2020 vehicle. Like many offices, vehicles are now operate on a bring-your-own-device ethos. People can talk and send texts while driving thanks to vastly improved voice recognition systems. In-vehicle cameras and windshield displays even allow telepresence, so some people are holding meetings in their vehicles. A critical mass of people wear Google Gap glasses. Cars are much safer even though there are all those distractions. Safety sensors steer a vehicle back into its lane if it drifts into the next lane. Safety sensors also warn drivers when the vehicle is following another too closely. People are driving more, but road capacity is not keeping up with demand. As a country, we still have not been able to solve our road funding challenges. Where states and cities have stepped in, needed capacity improvements are there, but there are geographic winners and losers. Also comforting to many under the fueled and freewheeling scenario, living and transportation patterns haven't changed substantially in the past 20 years. The American dream is still a large whole house with a large lot with a new car in the driveway. Why? The country has not changed course on energy or transportation policy. As the economy picked up after the Great Recession, people and policymakers were relieved not to have major changes in policy direction. People are making more money and so new home sales are up. Gas is cheap. Commuting distances don't matter. But a reluctance to raise taxes has left the transportation sector severely underfunded. America is one big pothole. A few states have adopted modified mileage fee systems and a few cities have imposed congestion charges, but overall the condition of U.S. roads and 
bridges is getting worse. Although the extent of the decline varies greatly, the results are most vi visible on a cross-country drive where the have and have-not states are clearly delineated. So the differences in mobility outcomes between the two scenarios can be seen in the rates of growth for different modes of transportation. We actually developed estimates of total passenger miles travel for four transportation modes, vehicle, transit, air, and intercity rail. For example, in 2010, total passenger, uh, vehicle passenger miles traveled was about 4.2 trillion miles. Under the no free lunch scenario, in the next 20 years, we see only a 2% increase over the 2010 baseline, while in fueled and freewheeling, it's a 16% increase. If we turn to transit, we see a 30% increase over the baseline in no free lunch, compared to a 17% increase under the, no, under the free, fueled and freewheeling scenario. Relative to vehicle, you'll see that the percent change seems high for fueled and freewheeling, but know that transit starts from a much smaller volume of miles traveled. The notable change is with air travel. Under both scenarios, air travel demand increases significantly from 2010 levels, but the increase under fueled and freewheeling is nearly double that under no free lunch. Demand for inner city rail remains relatively low compared to other modes in both scenarios. So overall, we see increases in travel demand volumes across all modes, across both scenarios. There are more people in the US, so and with population growth, you get increases in total travel demand. But there is substantially more demand under fueled and freewheeling than under no free lunch. So I'd like to end our presentation this morning with some thoughts on the implications of these two scenarios for transportation policy making. But before I do, I want to highlight two important qualities of our scenarios. If I leave you with something, I'd like you to think about these. First, the scenarios were developed by a systematic empirical process to identify past trends and prospective projections. So they represent plausible futures in which transportation policy making might be conducted. These, few condition, these future conditions may be more or less likely and more or less de desirable. Because the future is uncertain, we don't know whether one or the other or neither might actually result. Second, as the developer of these scenarios, we don't have a preference for which future results. The scenarios were developed without a political bias. That's not a good scenario and a bad scenario. They are just alternative visions of what the future might come to be based on objective interpretation of expert opinion. So what do these two opposing views of the future have to do with you? Well, your decisions right now, policymakers' decisions, will affect which future develops. Earlier in this presentation, Peter talked about key drivers that shape one scenario versus another. Some policymakers have control over, others not. For example, we know US policy doesn't really have direct control over the price of oil, but it does have control over the other two levers. For instance, the no free lunch scenario assumes timely policy changes to put the US on a sustainable greenhouse gas reduction course. 
with some public and business support. It also assumes policymakers have increased transportation funding, perhaps with a mileage-based user fee or an increased gas tax that is substantially above historical levels, again with some public and business support. The revenues from this are used to fix our infrastructure. Today's decisions can actually make that happen. On the other hand, in the fueled and free willing scenario, this assumes that the status quo continues. No new taxes, little change in energy policy, little change in transportation policy, yet the economy is doing well. The American dream is unchanged. People are driving more, and continuing technology advances are making increasing congestion less of a burden. Your actions, policymaker actions, can actually make that happen. So even though you think, as policymakers, that you're only focused on the here and now, on immediate political consequences, actually what you're doing now shapes the future. And, and it shapes which future will result in 20 years. What we've tried to do here today is to give you two alternative visions, plausible visions of what that future might be. So we ask you, which future would you like to live in? Thank you, and uh, we're ready to take questions. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.